Good morning, St. Leonard's. Shall we pray as we start once again? Father, we want to thank you for the joy of working our way through John's Gospel. And we want to thank you, Lord, for all that you want to teach us this morning. Lord, we ask that you would give us humble and teachable hearts. And Lord, that as we study your word together, that we would be uh, both challenged and changed. So Lord, we just invite you to speak to us by your Holy Spirit through this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. So our passage today is John chapter 12, verses 12 to 26. Let's start by just reading it. This is the triumphal entry. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the feast heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat upon it, as it is written, Do not be afraid, O daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realise that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had given this miraculous sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the feast. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the truth, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honour the one who serves me. This is an interesting passage, this one, and I'm sure for most of you, like me, the passage in your Bible is entitled The Triumphal Entry. But actually, that's quite an odd word to use in some respects. One of the, the primary reasons for this big, energetic crowd following Jesus is because this event follows on from the one that Martin so fabulously described last week. They've either witnessed or heard about Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, and so they're interested. They want to see this man, Jesus, who's become famous. But by the standards of the day, Jesus' entry into Jerusalem wouldn't have looked that triumphant. It is to us partly because that's what it says in our scriptures, but we know Jesus is our king. But in those days, the, the typical triumphal entry was a huge, elaborate political and military celebration with beautiful horses and golden chariots and dancers and singers. And the great leaders who were responsible for the success of a military campaign, they would actually come and parade the plunder they'd taken. They'd come armoured with a huge show of weaponry. And they would become the great heroes of the people enjoying the adulation and huge popularity and success. So we contrast that with people waving tree branches at a man riding on a donkey. 
It has the echoes of a triumphal entry, but it really looks quite different. Yes, Jesus is coming into Jerusalem as a king, but he doesn't look particularly king-like. There's no display of might or power. He's not coming in to conquer the city or to celebrate a huge political victory. He's coming as a humble king, a servant king, prepared to give his life as a ransom for humanity and knowing that in just a few days he would be put to death. He rides on a lowly donkey, which was also a symbol of peace, not some huge majestic stallion coming into the city. And we know he comes not to threaten the Romans with his power, but actually to fulfil the Old Testament prophecy and be the king that saves the lives of people like you and me. And in this moment that we've just read, most of the crowds are shouting their praises and adoration, Hosanna, blessed is the King of Israel. They welcome Jesus with these palm branches. And actually the account in Matthew's gospel tells us that they also spread their cloaks on the road. That was something which was an act of submission only paid to royalty. And yet we know that in a few days, many, many of those people will change their mind. And instead of shouting, Hosanna, blessed is the king, they'll be shouting, crucify, as they start to align with the Pharisees and the religious leaders. I think it's interesting because today we put so much weight on fame. How often do we hear people hankering after their five minutes of fame? And the whole cult of celebrity means we we tend to put the rich and famous on a pedestal, sometimes to the point where we worship them. In our culture, if someone becomes famous, we somehow think they've made it. And I think we've come to define success as fame. As a society as a whole, we idolise and we try to imitate these celebs. And we hanker after nice houses and wealth and all that comes with it. While I was working on this sermon this week, I came across this quote from a former religious studies teacher, which I thought was really interesting, and it just kind of sums up where we've got to in our culture today. He said this, he said, We have created a culture that en masse rejects spiritual belief, yet deifies the famous. Our new modern-day religion is the focal point of many people's lives. A whopping 11.7 million people trawl through the celebrity gossip pages of the Mail Online every single day. We idolise, pin up, aspire to and emulate where possible these individuals who are in essence exactly the same as us. I think it's a fascinating quote and I think he's absolutely right. You and I might not idolise celebrity. In fact, we might be quite dismissive. We might abhor the idea of being famous. But I suspect that most of us somewhere still have a tendency or a temptation to define success in worldly terms. I think the majority of us feel successful if, for example, we've earned enough to provide a comfortable home for us and our families to live in or a reliable car to drive, or we have a secure, well-paid job. And I know, I see it in my own family line, we feel successful if our children have done well, whether that's in their education or their career. And actually, that's not what success is all about. 
On Wednesday this week, one of the most famous and successful footballers of our time, Maradona, he died aged just 60. The BBC website describes him as a legend, and even I knew about him, and I've never ever been interested in football. And he certainly enjoyed wealth and fame, but it didn't fulfil him. And his life actually was marred by drug abuse, by personal crisis after personal crisis, and alcoholism. And so this is our problem. Success, as defined by the world, is fleeting and unfulfilling. But success in spiritual terms is an entirely different thing. And this is where we need to really look at the life of Jesus and make a conscious choice to be completely countercultural. Let's go to Philippians chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 5 to 8. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. This is an extraordinary thing. Jesus is God incarnate. In other words, God embodied in human form. It doesn't mean that Jesus was 50% God and 50% man. He was fully human. He was the second Adam. And like Adam, was not fully of human descent, but incarnate of the Holy Spirit, born of a virgin. And I want to suggest that the incarnation is one of the most shocking miracles, because it's the infinite and holy God voluntarily becoming finite and coming to live with unholy sinners with messed up lives. If we look at God's holiness in the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, God's holiness is described as a fearful thing. Moses couldn't look upon the face of God. Exodus 3.6 and Exodus 33.20 say, For no one may see me and live. In 2 Samuel 6, a man who touched the Ark of the Covenant when David was bringing it to Jerusalem was struck down. And Jesus embodies the holiness of God because he is God and has been with God from the beginning. It is an utterly extraordinary thing that Jesus, the eternal Son of God, invisible to humankind, eternal by nature, that he should manifest himself on the earth and become visible to us, even though, of course, he was already visible to the spiritual realm. People looked at him and they lived. People spat on him, people mocked him, and they lived. And this is why it's extraordinary. God, whose throne was so magnificent that Ezekiel couldn't find the words to describe it, was born as a baby in a manger in an insignificant little town, and he worked as a carpenter in Nazareth. And he chose to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey before giving up his whole life for you and me. Can you see the contrast? While most of the world understands success as fame and fortune and human adulation, 
real success in spiritual terms actually looks like death. For Jesus, he fully accomplished all that he came to do at the point at which he gave his life. So victory came in death. Sometimes I think it's easy to make the mistake of thinking that because Jesus was also divine, it was easy for him. It wasn't. He chose to empty himself. He chose to humble himself and pour himself out for our sakes. As it said in that passage in Philippians, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And he wrestled just as we wrestle. His sacrifice was a perfect sacrifice because of his conscious decision and intense struggle. And he really did experience all that we can go through. He experienced hunger and thirst and loneliness. He experienced weariness, betrayal, rejection, fear, pain and suffering, both physical and emotional. He's gone through it all. He could have sinned. Hebrews 4.15 says, He was tempted in every way, but he chose not to. And in so doing, he became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. That's what it says in 2 Corinthians 5.21. That's exactly what Paul meant when he wrote that Jesus took on the nature of a servant. He came into the world not as a lord or king, as we would expect, but as a servant or a slave, a person without any advantages or privilege or rights. And he poured himself out. It's the exact opposite of selfish ambition. There's absolutely nothing acquisitive or grasping about it. And because of all of that, he can truly intercede for us. The call on our lives is not an impossible call. I'm aware that this is a huge challenge. In the same way that Jesus becoming incarnate is a shocking miracle, I believe that actually what God intends is for our lives to end up being shocking to others. You and I are sons and daughters of the King, but we are called to lay down all selfish ambition. Scripture says, looking not only to our own interests, but to the interests of others. So, when we feed the hungry, when we generously give our money away, sometimes to complete strangers, when we pray for the sick, we're ministering to Jesus. When we trust more in God than in our circumstances, that's when our lives will demonstrate God's perfect love. And so you see, we're called not just to imitate God by what we do, but to have the mind of Christ. We're designed in God's image to reflect the same attitude of heart in every one of our relationships. We read just now in Philippians 2.5, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. It's so challenging. Denying self is not a popular thing to do in our culture, but it is the call on every single person who is a Christian. And the fact is that when we live in the way we're called to, others will think we're ludicrous. They'll think we're ridiculous. They will find the choices that we make shocking to them. 
because this really is going against the, the tide. But it's only by choosing to die to self that our lives will point to the miracle of what Jesus did by becoming a man. And so really I think the only place to end is to end with a question. And the question is this, what are we willing to give up in order to die to self?